Chapter 33 of Autumn Leaves. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Adrian Levitsky. Autumn Leaves. Edited by Anna Wales Abbott. From the papers of Reginald Ratcliffe, Esquire. Part three. September 30th. A golden sunrise. How much one loses under a false idea of its being a luxury to sleep in the morning. Reclining under Farmer Puddingstone's elm, and looking upon the glassy pond, in which the glowing sky mirrored itself, my soul was fired with poetic inspiration. On the blank page of a letter I wrote, how holy the calm in the stillness of morn! And threw down my paper, being suddenly quenched by self-ridicule, as I was debating whether to write to Ethland over the top. Returning that way after my ramble, I found the following conclusion pinned to the tree by a jackknife. How holy the calm in the stillness of morn! When to column to breakfast Josh toots on the horn! The ducks gives a quack, and the cow gives a moo, and the children chimes in with a plaintive boo-hoo. How holy the calm in the stillness of noon, when the pot is a-singin' its silvery tune, its soft woolly tune just like Araby's daughter, while the tea-kettle plays up the symphony arter. How holy the calm in the stillness of night, when the moon, like a pumpkin, looks yaller and bright, while the owls and the catydids, screeching like time, jest brings me up close to the end of my rhyme. And underneath was added, as if in scorn of my fruitless endeavour, I wrote that all right off, as fast as you could shell corn. S.P. I suppose it is by way of thanks for my having driven the pigs from the garden that I find a great bunch of dahlias adorning my mantelpiece, a brown earthen pitcher, and in the middle of the dahlias a magnificent sunflower. It must be my aunt's doing, and its very homeliness pleases me, just as I love her homely sincerity of affection. Who arranges the glasses in the parlour? Etty, I would not fear to affirm, from the asters and goldenrod, cheek by jewel, with petunias and carnations. I wonder if she would not like some of the clematis I saw twining about a dead tree by the pond. It is more beautiful in its present state than when it was in flower. Etty loves wild flowers because she is one herself, and loves to hide here in her native nook, where no eye, I might except my own, gives her more than a casual glance. Noon. I shall think it quite uncivil of Little Ugly if she does not volunteer to arrange my share of the booty I am bringing. Now that I have almost broken my neck, and quite my cane to obtain it. This I said to myself, as I came into the house by the kitchen entrance and proceeded to deposit my trailing treasures on Nora's table, by the side of a yellow squash. 
"'Do go with me to Captain Black's,' said Etty's voice at the side door. "'The old folks have not seen you since you return.' "'I can't,' said Flora with a drawl. "'Yes, do. Be coaxable for once. "'It only makes me obstinate to coax. "'Why not go without me, I beg? "'I am no novelty. "'I was in twice only yesterday.' Old people like attention from such as you, because, because it is unreasonable to expect it. The old man is failing. I can't do him any good. It is dusty, and my gown is long. It would please him to see you. I went to sit with him yesterday, but Timothy Digford came in with the same intent. So I went to church, having walked in the graveyard till the bell rang. "'Owl that you are! I don't envy you the lively meditations you must have had. Why don't you go? It's of no use waiting for me.' "'What? Will you let me carry both these baskets?' "'There. Put the little one on top of the other.' "'I don't think three or four peaches and a few flowers can add much to the weight. It is tiresome enough to do what I don't want to do, when it is really necessary.' and Little Handsome danced into the parlour without perceiving me. I laid a detaining hand on Etty's basket as she put herself in motion, on which she turned round with a look of unfeigned astonishment. "'May I not be a substitute for Flora?' I inquired. "'I do not require any aid,' said Miss Etty shyly. It is not on that account I was urging Flora, please, to let me have the basket. Indeed, it is quite necessary you should trouble yourself, she insisted, as I persevered in carrying off my load. It is the old red house, is it not? said I, with a roof sloping almost to the ground, and shall I say that you sent this? A view of my strange fizz will not refresh the old people like the sight of Flora's fresh young face, but I shall go in and make the agreeable as well as I can. "'Are you really in earnest?' asked Etty, looking full in my face, with a smile of wonder that made her radiantly beautiful. She turned away, blushing at my surprised and eager gaze, and, taking up her little basket, joined me, without a word of answer on my part. It was some time before I quite recovered from a strange flurry of spirits, which made my heart bump very much, as it does when I hear any unexpected good news, and then I dashed away upon the subject of old age, and anything else that came uppermost in the hope of drawing the soul-lighted eyes to mine again, with that transfiguring smile playing upon the lips. But I was like an unskilful magician. I had lost the spell. I could not again discover the spring I had touched. In vain I said to myself, I'll make her do it again. Little ugly wouldn't. She answered my incoherent smiles in her usual sedate manner, and I believe it was only in my imagination that her cheek dimpled a little with a heightened colour now and then, when I was particularly eloquent. Introduced by Miss Etty, I was cordially welcomed. I am always affected by the sight of an 
aged woman who at all reminds me of the grandmother so indulgent to my prankful boyhood. The old man, too, interests me. He has seen much of the world in his seafaring life, and related his adventures in a most unhackneyed style. I'll go and see them every day. One of the captain's anecdotes was very good. "'An old salt,' he said, "'once, once. Bah! What was it? How very lovely Etty looked, sitting on a cricket at the old woman's feet, and with a half-smile on her face, submitting her polished little head to be stroked by her trembling hands. This I saw out of the corner of my eye. Hark! Aunt Tabitha's called to dinner. I'm glad of it. I was scribbling such nonsense, when I have so much to write better worth while. Twelve o'clock. The night is beautiful, and it is a piece of self-denial to close the shutter, light my lamp, and write in my journal. Peace of mind came yesterday, positive happiness to-day, neither of which I can analyse. I only know I have not been so thoroughly content since the acquisition of my first jackknife, nor so proud since the day when I first sported a shining beaver. I have conquered Etty's distrust. She has actually promised me her friendship. I am rather surprised that I am so enchanted at this triumph over a prejudice. I am hugely delighted, not because it is a triumph, however. Vanity has nothing to do with it. It is a worthier feeling, one in which humility mingles with a more cordial self-respect than I have hitherto been conscious of. I can, and I will, deserve Etty's good opinion. She is an uncompromising judge, but I will surprise her by going beyond what she believes me capable of. I never had a sister. I shall adopt Etty, and when I go home we will write every week, if not every day. But how came it all about? By what blessed sunbeams can the ice have been softened? Till now, as I hope, it is broken up for ever. People under the same roof cannot long mistake each other, it seems, else Etty and I should never have become friends. As we left the door of Captain Black's house, and turned into the field path to avoid the dust, Etty said, I do not know whether you care much about it, but you have given pleasure to these good old people, who have but little variety in their daily routine, being poor and infirm and lonely. It is really a duty to cheer them up if we can. I felt that it warmed my heart to have shared that duty with her, and I said so. I thought she looked doubtful and surprised. It was a good opening for egotism, and I improved it. I saw that she was no uninterested listener, but all along rather suspicious and incredulous, as if what I was claiming for myself was inconsistent with her previous notions of my disposition. I believe I had made some little impressions Saturday night, but her old distrust had come back by Sunday morning. Now she was again shaken. At last, looking up with the air of one who has taken a mighty resolve, she said, I presume such a keen observer as yourself must have noticed that the most reserved people are, on some occasion, the most frank and direct. I am going to tell you that I feel some apology due to you. If my first impressions of your character are really incorrect, 
I am puzzled what to think. I am to suppose that your first impressions were not as favorable as those of Mrs. Black, whom I heard remark that I was an amiable youth with an uncommonly pleasant smile. Just the opposite, in fact, pardon me. To my eye you had a mocking, ironical cast of countenance. I felt sure at once you were the sort of person I never could make a friend of, and acquaintances I leave to Flora, who wants to know everybody. I thought the less I had to do with you, the better. I felt hurt, and almost insulted. I had not been mistaken, then. She had disliked me, and perhaps disliked me yet. It was not that I stood in fear of your satire, she continued. I am indifferent to ridicule or censure in general. No one but a friend has power to wound me. A flattering emphasis! Truly! I felt my temper a little stirred by Miss Etty's frankness. I was sulkily silent. I had no claim to any forbearance, any consideration for peculiarities of any sort. I am perfectly resigned to being the theme of your wit in any circle, if you can find aught in my country-bred ways to amuse you. Sounds! I must speak. My conduct to Flora must have confirmed the charming impression produced by my unlucky fizz, I imagine. But don't bear malice against me in her behalf. You must have seen that she was perfectly able to revenge herself. Etty's light-hearted laugh rung out, and reminded me of my once baffled curiosity when it reached my ear from Nora's domain. But though this unsuppressed mirth of hers revealed the prettiest row of teeth in the world, and made the whole face decidedly beautiful, somehow or other it gave me no pleasure, but rather a feeling of depression. My joining in it was pure pretense. Presently the brightness faded, and I found myself gazing at the cold countenance of Little Ugly again. "'No, I did not refer to Flora,' said she. "'As you say, she can avenge her own quarrel, and we both were quite as ready to laugh at you as you could be to laugh at us, I assure you.' "'No doubt of it,' said I, with some pique. "'But what I cannot forgive you—' cannot think of with any toleration is what cried i astonished how have i offended a man of any right feeling at all could not make game of an aged woman his own relative at the same time that he was receiving her hearty and affectionate hospitality neither have i done so cried i in a towering passion. You do me a great wrong in accusing me of it. I would knock any man down who should treat my aunt with any disrespect. And if I have sometimes allowed Flora to do it unrebuked, you well know that she might once have pulled my hair or cuffed my ears, and I should have thought it a becoming thing for a young lady to do. I have played the fool under your eye, and submit that you should entertain no high opinion of my wisdom. 
but you have no right to judge so unfavorably of my heart. If I have spoken to my aunt with boyish petulance, when she vexed me, at least it was to her face, and regretted, and atoned for to her satisfaction. I am incapable of deceiving her, much less of ridiculing her either behind her back or before her face. I respond to her love for me with sincere gratitude, and the sister of my grandmother shall never want any attention that an own grandson could render while I live. I shall find it hard to forgive you this accusation, Miss Etty, I said haughtily, and shut my mouth as if I would never speak to her again. She made no answer, but looked up into my face with one of those wondrous smiles. It went as straight to my heart as a pistol bullet could do, my high indignation proving no defence against it. I was instantly vanquished, and as I heartily shook the hand she held out to me, I was just able to refrain from pressing it to my lips, which, now I think of it, would have been a most absurd thing for me to do. I wonder what could have made me think of doing it. After dinner, I hear Flora's musical laugh in the mysterious boudoir, and a low, congratulatory little murmur of good humour on Etty's part. I believe she is afraid to laugh loud, lest I should hear her do it, and rush to the spot. The door is ajar. I'll storm the castle. Flora admitted me with a shout of welcome. The instant I tapped, Etty pushed a rocking-chair toward me, but said nothing. The little room was almost lined with books, drawings, paintings, shells, corals, and, in the sunny window, plants met my exploring gaze. But the great basket was nowhere to be seen. It was got up for the nonce, I imagine. Etty, rogue! This is the pleasantest nook in the house. It is a shame you have not been let in before said Flora, zealously. You shall see at his drawings. Neither of us opened the portfolio she seized, however, but watched at his eyes. They were cast down with a diffident blush which gave me pain. I was indeed an intruder. She gave us the permission we waited for, however. There were many good copies of lessons. Those I did not dwell upon. But the sketches, spirited though imperfect, I studied as if they had been those of an Alston. Etty was evidently in a fidget at this preference of the smallest line of original talent over the corrected performances which are like those of everybody else. I drew out a full-length figure done in black chalk on brown paper. It chained Flora's wandering affection as quite new. It was a young man with his chair tipped back. His feet rested on a table with a slipper perched on each toe. His hands were clasped upon the back of his head. The face, really, I was angry at the diabolical expression given it by eyes looking askance, and lips pressed into an arch by a contemptuous smile. It was a corner of this very brown sheet that I saw under her arm, when she vanished from the kitchen as I entered. 
the vociferous mirth which attracted me was at my expense. Before Flora could recognize my portrait, Little Ugly pounced upon it. It fell in a crumpled lump into the bright little wood-fire, and ceased to exist. "'I had totally forgotten it,' said she, with a blush which avenged my wounded self-love. Ironical pleasure at having seen the subject of her pencil, I could not indulge myself in expressing, as I did not care to enlighten Little Handsome. Any lurking pique was banished, when Etty showed me, with a smile, the twilight view by the pond. "'Do you draw?' she asked. And Flora cried, "'He makes caricatures of his friends with pen and ink. Let him deny it, if he can.' I was silent." End of From the Papers of Reginald Radcliffe, Esquire, Part 3 Recording by Adrian Levitsky End of Autumn Leaves Edited by Anna Wales Abbott